We are returning to our study through the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. And we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll be reading the first 16 verses. Please give your attention to God's word. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, that each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? One of the most popular, famous pop music duos when I was a small child, back in the 60s and early 70s, was Sonny and Cher. They did have a few hit songs, but they're probably known more for their comedy, uh, comedy variety television show, and that's how they became so well-known and loved in the culture. On their show, sometimes, they would bring out their little blonde-haired, curly-haired daughter, Chastity. And we all knew her, and that's how we all remembered her. And even though her only claim to fame in life was that she was Sonny and Cher's daughter, in some ways, she's ended up having a bigger impact on culture than her parents did. Back in the mid-90s, Chastity was one of the first public figures to come out boldly as a lesbian. And then in 2009, she came out as a transgender and underwent gender reassignment. Now she calls herself Chaz Bono instead of Chastity and is legally recognized as a man. 
the only comment I want to make on that is that it's ironic to me that one of the trailblazers and pioneers of the LGBT movement had the name chastity. Chastity is a word we don't hear much in this culture. It's an old-fashioned word. I don't, honestly, don't, out in the public market, I, I, you know, I don't hear the word chastity used at all. Matter of fact, if somebody asked you to define chastity, there's a good chance you would define it inaccurately. Let me give you the dictionary definition of chastity. Chastity means abstaining from unlawful sexual activity. That simply. Chastity is abstaining from unlawful sexual activity. And historically, throughout almost all of our culture at least, and much of world culture, the law in lawful activity is God's law, the eternal law, the unchanging law of our creator. Abstaining from unlawful sexual activity. And God's word is unambiguously clear about his law regarding sexual activity. Sexual activity should only, must only, take place within the context of a lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's the law. That's the boundary around which legitimate, satisfying, joyful, God-pleasing sexual activity can occur. Sex with your spouse, your covenant partner before God, or no sex at all. That's chastity. We are radicals today because we say that there are any laws that apply to sexual activity. And unfortunately, increasingly, we're finding that that's true inside the church, not just outside the church. I remember the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. At the beginning of that movie, the pirates keep appealing to the pirates' code. And the pirates' code is like this standard by which their behavior, and they could settle all disputes by appealing to the pirates' code. But you remember that point halfway through the movie when the heroine appeals to the pirates' code before Captain Barbosa. You remember what Captain Barbosa said? Well, the code is more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules. The world rejects the law of God. The world outside the church rejects the rules that God gives us in his word. But unfortunately, increasingly, inside the church, we've taken the Captain Barbosa approach to chastity and God's laws. Those are more guidelines than really rules. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, has a a great chapter on chastity. If you've never read it, pick up Mere Christianity and read the chapter he devotes to the word, and it's titled Chastity. In that chapter, he says, Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it is now, has gone wrong, one or the other. Of course, Lewis says, being a Christian, I think it's the instinct that has gone wrong. 
chastity has been rejected by our culture. It's being winked at in the church. But that is the path to lawful sexual activity, satisfying sexual activity, joyful sexual activity, sexual activity that pleases God. Chastity. As we've seen in our studies in 1 Corinthians, over and over, we've seen that our church in this culture has a lot in common with the church in the first century in Corinth because a lot of the same issues we're facing in our cultural context were the same issues that that church was facing, particularly in the fact that Corinth had a strong reputation in the Roman Empire as being a den of iniquity, especially in regard to sexual indulgence and perversions. And we saw how this has already, we've seen in the chapters we've looked at already, how this has infected the thinking and the practices of the church in Corinth. In chapter 5, they were not even saying, seemingly saying anything or opposing in any way a man who was openly committing incest in their midst. He was sleeping with his, his father's wife, his stepmother. And then when we looked at chapter 6, we saw in chapter 6, Paul takes a strong stand rebuking them for the sexual immorality that had crept into the church. And as we went through that chapter and looked at some of the reasons Paul gave, you could, we, we came to the conclusion that what was going on in the Corinthian church is that it had been infected not only by the practices of their Corinthian culture, but the mindset and even the philosophy and worldview of the Corinthian culture. And it was what was contributing to their sexual immorality. Remember we said that Greek philosophy taught that our soul, our spiritual nature, is who we really are. And that the body is at best an insignificant shell that contains our true self, our soul, or at worst, our body was an evil hindrance to the progression of our soul. That was the Greek philosophy, the Greek worldview, the Greek view of man. We are our soul. Our body is unimportant at best and evil at worst. And so this thinking had crept into the church, and what we think happened seems pretty clear from the way Paul writes these chapters what was going on is that the Christians were saying, well, my soul is what's really important. My soul is saved. Jesus died for my soul. My soul is united with Christ by faith. My body is just a shell. It's not important. It's really about what's going on with my soul. And so some of the Christians in Corinth were responding to that mindset by saying, well, then it doesn't matter how I live. I can go out and live any way I want to live with my body because my body's not important. It's really about the enlightenment of my soul. And so they were using this worldly philosophy to justify their sexual immorality. And that was going on. And, you know, that's not entirely new thinking. I was thinking about the Greek philosophy and worldview and preparing for this message, and I came across an article this week by Nancy Piercy, and she is responding to the president's declaration about transgender bathrooms in schools, and she's responding to the core idea of our government now that, that a person's gender identity may be different than their biological makeup. And of course, this is the, 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 the spirit of the age. That's the thinking of the day. So that's what she's responding to. Listen to what she says. What does the language imply? It implies that biological facts do not matter. Your biology gives no clue to your gender identity. It is irrelevant to the quote-unquote, authentic self. 
the result is a fragmented, dualistic worldview that denigrates the physical body as inconsequential and insignificant, a worldview that alienates people from their own bodies. You see how the spirit of the age, the thinking of the day, is that it's really who I am inwardly, and I can determine who I am inwardly. It's not important what my body is externally. My body's not important. Of course, we've been teaching that the body is a product of evolution, so that's not surprising. It's a very negative view of the human body. It's a very Greek view of the soul as being where our true identity is. But we saw a couple weeks, a few weeks ago, that's not the biblical worldview. In a biblical worldview, God, our creator, created us as both body and soul. That our body is part of our identity. Our body is part of who we are. As God has assigned who we are, both physically and spiritually. And so this is the kind of thinking that was going on. And in the Corinthian church, they were using that thinking to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do with my body then. I can live like the world. But in chapter 7, as we come to chapter 7, Paul shifts from talking to those people that were living openly in sexual immorality and part of the church, and he talks to another group in the church, these people who had gone to the other extreme. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now, of course, as we've said before, much of 1 Corinthians is Paul responding to questions and crises and difficulties that the Corinthian church sent to him. So he's responding to what they've already asked him. And in the ESV, or in most English versions, there's quotes around the next sentence. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The quotes there indicate that the translators think that Paul is not stating his own belief here, but he's actually quoting what they had sent to him in the letter. This is what they were saying in the church. In other words, they were saying, we live in a depraved, corrupt Corinthian culture, and so if somebody in the church wants to be really spiritual, the best thing to do is to be celibate, basically give up sexual activity entirely, even if you're married. Basically saying to all Christians, the right thing to do is to renounce sexuality. And that's been something that's promoted in the history of the church from time to time, that that's what truly spiritual people do. They live a life of celibacy. And so that's what Paul's responding to. And I think it's accurate that he's quoting, first of all, because Paul would not, would not contradict the creation commandment. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Paul would not contradict the institution of marriage by God, of God's intent to create marriage as the norm among human society. He would not contradict that. Also, everything he says in chapter 7 from this point on is either qualifying that statement or even contradicting it. So clearly Paul is disagreeing with that statement that total abstinence is the only choice for a spiritual Christian. Having said that, why were they saying this? Well, again, going back to the Greek philosophy, if the body is evil or the body is insignificant or unimportant, and the enlightenment of the soul is what is important, you can either do what some of these Christians were doing, which was indulging in sexual immorality, or you could go to the other extreme. And you could say, I'm going to deny the body. I'm going to deny my natural desires. I'm going to treat the body harshly in order to promote the enlightenment and progress of my soul. And that's where the, a lot of the thinking of this kind of practice and of celibacy in the church has come from. 
Asceticism is what we call it, and that's what some in the Corinthian church were advocating. That the temptations to sexual sin were so strong in that culture that the spiritual thing to do would be to abstain completely. And so that's what Paul's responding to and addressing. And he rebukes both those who are sexually immoral Christians and those who are ascetic Christians, those who indulge and those who abstain. In these chapters, he's rebuking both groups. And what he's doing is he's upholding this biblical standard of what we have called chastity. That's the path to sexual fulfillment. Chastity is the key to biblical obedience in this area of life. Keeping sexual activity within the boundaries of the covenant of a biblical marriage. So how do we live as chaste disciples then? Paul addresses three groups in the church, three different callings, so to speak, within the church. The first group that he addresses are the married people. And he points the married people as they bear up under the constant pressure of temptation around them. He points them to the rights of marriage. The rights, that's what he emphasizes. Look at verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. What Paul is going to be saying here is that biblical marriage is the best solution to and protection from sexual immorality in your life. Let me be clear to point out that Paul isn't saying that the only purpose of marriage is for sexual relations. It sounds like he has a very reductionist view of marriage. Well, if you don't have self-control and you, know, you must have sexual relations, then go ahead and get married. But if you're really spiritual, you know, we'll get to that later. But that's not what he's saying. Paul actually has a very high view of marriage. If you don't believe me, go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 has one of the most glorious descriptions of marriage in all of Scripture to the point where Paul says that marriage is, is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Very exalted terms. Paul has a very high view of, of marriage. He sees it as the normal calling of the Christian life. But you have to understand when we're looking at 1 Corinthians, a lot of times, have you ever had that experience where you're in the living room and somebody in the family is talking on their cell phone and you're listening to their half of the conversation and you're having a whole lot of trouble interpreting what they're saying because you don't hear the other half of the conversation? Well, that's what the book of 1 Corinthians is like. If you don't know what the Corinthian questions are, if you don't know what the Corinthian statements are, you can, it's easy to misinterpret how Paul's responding to them. What Paul isn't doing here is trying to teach us what's the primary purpose of marriage. If that was the question he was asked by the Corinthians, he wouldn't answer this way. He's responding to Corinthians saying that even in marriage, you should do away with sex because sex is bad news. That's what he's responding to. And so he's not trying to say this is the primary purpose of marriage. He's just saying in relation to sexual temptation, here is a purpose of marriage. And that's what he's addressing here in verse 3, Paul says to husbands and wives, do not refrain from sexual intimacy. A command to make that important part of the marriage relationship what it should be. Do not refrain. Do not abstain, he says. Now the reason he gives is not going to sit too well with people in this day and age. The reason he gives, he says, is that for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. 
And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's a radical thought. But that's what marriage is, isn't it? Go back to creation again. Go back to Genesis. Isn't the testimony of Genesis that a man and a woman are to come together and become one flesh? That's what Paul's, that's the principle that Paul's alluding to here. That when you come into the covenant of marriage, you are giving the right, giving up, you're, you're giving over the rights of your body to your spouse and vice versa. And that that is part of being faithful to your marriage vow is to serve your spouse by giving them the rights to your body. That's a, that is a powerful principle that I use every time I do premarital counseling. To understand, I mean, the world out there will tell you for hours upon end upon how to have a satisfying sex life, but here Paul lays before us the key to it. Is that you understand that as one flesh before God, your bodies belong to each other and you are to serve one another with your bodies. Now, Paul's not dealing here with who has, who's the spiritual head of the home. That's not the issue. What he's saying is your wife has a right to your body, you have a right to your wife's body, but it's not about demanding your rights. It's never in scripture is it about demanding your rights. So don't misread what he's saying here. Christian behavior, Christian discipleship is permeated, immersed, and based upon the concept of mutual submission. So the idea is, is that you give up your rights to your spouse and your spouse gives up her or his rights to you. And that you're looking to serve them, not yourself. Selfishness kills sexual activity just like it kills a marriage. That's what Paul's referring to. It's the creation concept of becoming one flesh. God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Then in verse 5, Paul does allow for just giving some wisdom to the church to say there is a purpose for temporary abstinence, a period of abstinence in a marriage. There could be a variety of reasons for this being good for the marriage, but it has to meet three conditions, Paul says. First of all, it has to be temporary, not permanent, for a short period of time. Secondly, it must be by agreement. In other words, you can't impose it upon your spouse. Remember, your, your, your goal is to serve your spouse, and so it must be mutual. It must be mutual submission and mutual agreement. And thirdly, it must have the purpose of drawing near to God, spiritual growth. Specifically, he mentions here prayer. Those are the conditions for any extended period of abstinence in a marriage. And what he says is that if you abstain too long, what you're doing is inviting a spiritual attack from Satan. You know, Paul talks about the danger of elevating man-made rules like total abstinence in marriage, of elevating that to the same level as God's rules for marriage, that that kind of legalism, Paul addresses that in Colossians chapter 2 when he says, he talks about people who say, do not handle, do not touch, and in this case, do not touch a woman. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what Paul is saying here 
is that marriage is the normal way to lawfully engage in sexual activity and that if you're married, that is a right that your spouse has, a right that you share, and a way that you love one another and express intimacy with one another, and it is the only path to glorifying God in that area of your life through activity. And so then Paul goes to the second group that he addresses, who are the single people. And he mentions either people that are single by choice or people that have been widowed or widowered, if that's a word, those whose spouse has died. And he addresses the single people and he points them to the gift of singleness. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, and by that he means unmarried, but each has his own gift from God. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. It is good to be single. It's a calling. It's a providence. It's a guidance. It's a direction in your life. That God is, if God has put you in a place in your life where you're not married, then you are called to that. You are called to live obediently, chaste, in a chaste manner as a disciple of Christ. And he says that singleness is a gift from God. Later in the chapter, we'll get to this, when we get to the end of chapter 7, he gets into some very specific reasons why singleness is a gift from God, why it's a blessing, why it frees you up to serve God in ways that married people can't, and especially, he will say, in times of distress, that singleness can be a very good option for people, and he'll make his case for that later. But here, he just wants the single people to understand that this is a calling and a gift from God. The dialogue that Paul has with the Corinthians here is very similar to the dialogue you'll remember that Jesus had with his disciples. Back in Matthew 19, when Jesus lays down God's law for sexual activity in regard to marriage, he says that in uh, verse 9 of Matthew 19, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He's upholding the law of a boundary around the covenant of marriage and gives the one exception that if a spouse commits adultery, that breaks the covenant and therefore breaks the marriage. Well, you remember how the disciples responded to that, that high standard of God's law. It says the disciples said to him, if, it's such, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. He's saying that's an impossible standard, Jesus. We can't live by that standard. How can, in this culture, in this fallen world, how can we do this? And Jesus responds not by talking as I might, by going to how beautiful marriage is and give them something to look forward to maybe or to enjoy and if they already experience it in marriage. He actually addresses the single people. He says in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. I'm sorry, verse 11. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. He's saying it's a gift. Jesus is saying the exact same thing, the exact same thing that Paul is saying to the Corinthians. God can give you the gift of singleness. If you find yourself in a state of singleness, then that is God's calling, and he can give you the gift and the ability and the strength to remain faithful, even in a dark and depraved culture. 
Celibacy is the calling outside of marriage for everyone. And God can enable you, as impossible as that may sound. Paul does make an allowance for those who find it very difficult to live with contentment and singleness in verse 9. It says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Kind of a funny way of saying it, but what he's really saying is some of you are trying to be single. You feel like single is your calling, but you're missing your calling. You're really called to be married. And that if you find it that difficult, if you're really trying to serve the Lord and you're finding it difficult to live in singleness, then that's a good clear sign that the Lord may be calling you to the gift of marriage instead of the gift of singleness. But the important point there is that God, who called you, the God who forgives your sins, has also promised you, if you will trust him, the ability to walk in obedience. And I think in this day and age, I think it's hard to believe that promise. But it has always been true. It's just as true today as it was in the days of Paul or the days of Jesus. He is faithful to enable you to do what he has called you to do. The last section, Paul addresses another group in Corinth. And this goes back to his issue of marriage. He makes a strong point in verses 10 and 11 that if you are married, a wife must not separate from her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. He, again, upholds the very clear moral standard of God's law in regard to marriage. Divorce is not an option. But that would raise a question in the minds of many of the Corinthian Christians because they came out of a pagan culture, and I am certain that more so even in our case, in their case, you had believers who were married when they came to faith, and therefore they have an unbelieving spouse. So what should they do with their unbelieving spouse? I mean, it's clear if you go back to the Old Testament, the Israelites were strictly forbidden to have foreigners as wives. Even later in this chapter, in, in verse 39, it says that believers were, Paul says that believers are only to marry in the Lord. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is going to teach the Corinthians there that they are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So if this is a consistent teaching of scripture, you're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, then you'd have the Christian believers who were married when they became Christians saying, well, should I break this yoke with my spouse because they don't believe? And so Paul in verse 12 addresses that head on. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now again, be careful how you interpret that. Back earlier when he says, the Lord says this, I don't say this, he's quoting something that Jesus directly said. He's quoting the words of Jesus about the institution of marriage. Here, addressing those with unbelieving spouses, it says that he's, he says, the Lord didn't say this, I'm saying this. He doesn't mean that his words have any less authority than the words of Christ because he is Christ's apostle he is given the authority to speak the words of Christ and empowered by the Spirit of Christ to speak what he speaks. His writings are of equal authority with the writings of the Gospels and the sayings of Jesus. What he's saying here is Jesus never addressed this directly. Jesus never answered the question, what should a believer do if they have an unbelieving spouse? He never addressed it. So I'm going to expand upon what Jesus said. And what he says in verse 12 is this. If any brother has a wife who has an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Stay married. 
Stay faithful to your covenant vows. As long as your spouse, your unbelieving spouse, is willing to stay in the marriage. Now, again, he gives a surprising reason for that. The reason reflects the born-again nature of a true Christian. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her children, or because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Typical self-sacrificial thinking for a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's hard to be married to an unbeliever. I've known many people who have borne that burden of being married to an unbeliever. But you are to stay faithful, he says, to your covenant vows as an example to your unbelieving spouse and for the benefit of your unbelieving spouse. And the first benefit he talks about is that by staying with your unbelieving spouse, you are keeping them in contact with the kingdom of God. That's what he's really getting at in that verse. It's confusing language because he uses the word holy, but it's not the way we usually think of holy. By holy here, by saying the husband of a believing spouse is holy and the children of a believing spouse is holy, he's not saying that they're made morally pure. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that they're reconciled to God by grace. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is they are associated with the kingdom of God because a believer is in the household. When a believing husband or a wife or a believing parent is in the household, that household becomes what we in the church call a covenant household because of the presence of the believer. And so it, it, it elevates the status of the other members of the household, particularly the children. As a matter of fact, Paul does use slightly different words here, how the husband is holy and how the children are made holy, slightly different. I think he's indicating that there is a slight difference, that children in the history of the covenant of redemption all the way back to the beginning always included children. So if you had a believing parent, their children were included in the covenant. And so it's a covenant household because of the believing parent. There's another sense in which the husband is also holy. Again, not that he's changed in any way, but that he is holy by association by being a part of this covenant household. He's, he's recognized as having the privileges of having the word of God proclaimed and lived and expressed daily in his life. He has contact with the holy thing. It's kind of like how the, the temple was holy or the gold on the temple was holy because of its connection to God, not because of the inherent nature of it. The way the, the animal on the altar was holy because of the purpose of it, not because of anything about the nature of it. It's holiness by association in that Old Testament sense that Paul's speaking. So that's the first purpose is don't take away this unbeliever's association with holy things is what he's saying. And don't put your children in a place where they're outside of the covenant community. Keep the household together. A very unselfish reason to stay. The second unselfish reason is in verse 15. God has called you to peace, Paul says. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? We all have the great commission applied to us as individuals. We're to go out and make disciples, preach the gospel, lead people to Christ. And our first priority is to our spouse. Our second priority is to our children. And our third priority and fourth priority and fifth priority go beyond that. But our first priority is our family. And he's saying to the believing spouse, don't leave your mission field. Stay there to seek to win your husband 
going to win your children to the Lord. That's your purpose. I, my mother prayed for my father for four decades. And it was hard for her to have an unbelieving husband. But when he was in his early 60s, God responded to my mother's prayers, and he came to know the Lord, and they died together as believers. We had a lady in our church that joined the church the week, or came to the church the week after we arrived in Philadelphia, stayed with us, and was a faithful core member of the church for 20 years. And we as a church prayed for her unbelieving husband all that 20 years I was there. Well, most of those 20 years, because the last year we had the joy of receiving him as a member when he professed faith in Christ. That's self-sacrificial service. And that's a hard calling in life. But just like singleness is a hard calling, so is a mixed marriage a hard calling. But God is faithful. The Spirit of God can enable you to do whatever he calls you to do if you stop running away from his calling. We are called to chastity. Chastity is living by God's law for sexual activity. And fulfillment in sexual activity comes through the covenant of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman for life. The final word I want to leave you with is that sadly we're all lawbreakers, consistently lawbreakers. Jesus said if you even entertain illicit sexual thoughts, you're guilty of fornication or adultery. So we are all condemned by God's law as sinners in this very important area of our lives. But God sent a law keeper. He sent his son, who had a fully human nature, but yet walked in complete and perfect obedience to God's law in this area and every area of his life. And then God offered up his son, gave his son, to hang on the cross, to bear the wrath of God, to shed his blood so that our sins would be forgiven, so that his wrath would be turned away, so that we could be made clean. And that's something that people in this culture are crying out for, is sexual cleanness. Are you tired of carrying the shame and the guilt of sexual sin? The blood of Christ covers all sin, and it's available to all who will put their trust in Christ. If you trust in Christ and confess your sin, he will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And more than that, having forgiven you, he will give you the gift of Christ's righteousness so that when God looks at you, he sees someone who has been always sexually pure because you're robed in the righteousness of Christ. And that way you can walk boldly into the presence of God even today in spite of your sin. But more than that, he gives you his spirit so that you can begin to live by the laws that he has given regarding sexual activity in your life. That you can find true obedience in your life. You can actually live obediently in an area that you may have long ago given up hope living obediently because if you trust Christ, he has promised you, he would not call you to obedience if he didn't first promise to give you the ability to be obedient. I'm not saying it comes easily. I'm not saying it comes quickly, necessarily. It can. 
but it's a lifelong struggle, especially in a culture like this, in a culture like Corinth. No matter what rules you've broken or for how long you've broken them, there is immediate forgiveness available right now through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for all the desires that you have wired into us that we might seek your will and find pleasure in the ways that you have provided. But Lord, there are so many ways in which we have fallen short in this area of our lives. We don't like to talk about it in such sacred settings as this, but the world around us is screaming and shouting about it all the time. And today we just needed to be reminded of what your word tells us. We needed to be reminded of the resources that are available to us in Christ. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for the spirit of Christ that enables us to walk in your ways. I pray that you would renew us in your cleansing, forgiving, fulfilling grace through Christ our Lord today. We pray in his name. Amen.